Welcome to Beyond the Surface. On our podcast, we highlight underrepresented voices in architecture. We'll humanize architects by uncovering who they are beyond the surface. Hi, I'm your host, Alex Sanchez, representing Illinois Tech's student chapter of the National Organization of Minority Architects. Today's episode is called The Call to Diversity with our guest, Ashwin Williams. Ashwin Williams, NOMA AA, is an architect with KU in Chicago. She is the current president of INOMA and the director on the AA Board of Directors. Thank you for being here with us today. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. I'm excited to be here, excited to have a conversation. I'm glad to have you here too. So we're going to go in and start with some of the questions that I have for you today. So can we start with telling us how your childhood shaped who you are right now and your identity? Yeah, definitely. So I was born and raised in Mid-Missouri. My dad um, was a cartographer. He worked for the USGS, the US Geological Survey. And my mom worked for the state of Missouri. And my parents really just always supported any endeavor that I was working on. So I have a younger brother. We were in childhood sports. I was in Girl Scouts. My parents coached us. My mom was my Girl Scout troop leader. And they really fostered creativity. I did well in school. And they always encouraged me. They always supported me. And they kind of let me find my own way, sort of explore the things I was interested in and made space for that. That sort of allowed me to find my identity and self. I was, I was still a shy kid, but I really early on was able to sort of identify what I was interested in, what I wanted to do and pursue those things. They always made space for that. So I think that as an adult, I am still very close to my family, close to my parents, and still feel that support coming up. That, I think, has allowed me to try more things than someone who is as shy as I feel would normally venture out and do. Just because I had support, I've always felt that network of support coming up. So I knew that I had a supportive network to fall back on. So I didn't feel fear about trying new things. So with trying new things, I know that Um, there probably wasn't as many role models in architecture that you could look up to. So going from how you identified yourself, how did you end up going into architecture? So that came out of a Girl Scout badge um, because I didn't know any architects growing up. I didn't know about that as a job. As a kid, I went through the regular or like the high one, the high marks of like, oh, I want to be a doctor. And then I was like, actually, I started to learn, I was like, gross, never mind. I was like, oh, I wanted to be a lawyer. And then I did teen court and I was like, oh, I don't really, I'm not interested in like defending guilty people. Like my middle school and high school, like sense of justice couldn't get on board with it. But then I did a badge about careers in, as a brownie in Girl Scouts and architect was like one of the jobs. And it was just like a very elementary space planning exercise for like a home. And I loved it so much. I was like, okay, lasered in, that's what I want to do. And I always say, fortunately, it worked out because I decided and my mom was like, yeah, we didn't know where you came up with that, but you were sure. So we let you do it. But I was like, oh, my gosh, what if I hated it? I committed in like sixth grade. Like, it could have gone wrong. That was very early on. (laughs) Yes. Thankfully, I love it now. But like, oof, what if it was not great? (laughs) Yeah, it was taking a risk. Yeah. But fortunately, it worked out for me. So as a profession, I love it. From being in sixth grade, what was your path like going into architecture? So, like at my school, it's um, I'm from Rolla. It's a smallish city. It's technically a city, a smallish city in Missouri. 
we didn't really have architecture focused programs or classes like they do at some Chicago schools, which is really awesome. But we had drafting and the drafting course was so basic. I like flew through the exercises. By the end, I was like the only person sort of like, he was like, okay, well, you know, like you can start learning CAD. At what age? Well, this is in high school, but it's okay. still like, but like the class is a hand drafting class and it was more tech focused. So you're like doing a lot of um, machine parts drawings and everything, yeah. but you are learning drafting. And there, to a certain extent, there was some sort of like architectural focused drafting of like plans and everything. But by the end of that, I got into learning a little bit of CAD and how to just like AutoCAD. But that was really the extent of my exposure to that as a, that's as close as I got to being exposed to the profession before I went to college. So I didn't know a ton about the requirements for what it took to become an architect after college. So I applied to, I'm like always very honest about this, my decision on applying to schools was like, I looked at a map and I was like, where are available architecture programs? And could I get home in a weekend if I got homesick? Because I was a very, like I said, I'm from a close-knit family. I never really traveled far from my family. And so like, what do you mean I was going to live outside of the house and like so far away from my parents? So Kansas luckily was like, and I say luckily because, and I mentioned not knowing about what it takes to get licensed because I didn't know about like accredited or non-accredited programs. Mm -hmm. I didn't know about four plus two programs or going to grad school. Like I didn't know about all of the different ways you can get from wanting to be an architect and going to school and then coming out and getting licensed and what was required or not required. So I applied to, like I said, a handful of schools around Missouri. And then KU at the time had reciprocity. So they gave in-state tuition to students from Missouri. And then there was a program in Missouri that had in-state tuition for students from Kansas. And so the proximity, I was fortunate to earn a scholarship plus in-state tuition was really like the deciding factor because I really didn't do a ton of research on like what programs are the best, this, that, and the other. So that's kind of how I ended up there. And luckily it worked out. KU is a, you go into the professional school your freshman year. Mm -hmm. So in five years, I came out with a master's of architecture. Wow. And so that's sort of, for better or worse, like that's how that worked out because I came out during a recession. Perhaps if I had had grad school, like my life would have gone a different path. But I came out and there was a hiatus (laughs) between graduation and me ending up in Chicago and working where I do now. But I lucked out that it went smoothly for as little as I knew about what it took to become an architect when I decided that I wanted to be one. I will say the same thing did happen to me coming to IIT. Mm -hmm. I didn't know it was an accredited program. (laughs) I just knew it was a good school. So I understand um, what you were saying. So while you were at the university, you had an internship in Paris. Can you tell me a bit about your experiences abroad and how that influences the way you design in the built environment? Could you also elaborate how you felt being so far away from home? Yeah, so that was my fourth year of school internship in the summer after my fourth year. So like I said, I had been very much home. Like we traveled as a family a lot. So I'd been all over the country, but I took my first sort of like plane ride that I could remember in college. Actually, they do it. They used to, I think they still do. They do like a Chicago field trip for the architecture students. So like that was my first, that was my first plane ride that I could remember in yeah. like my second year of college or something. And yeah. then I was interested in going abroad. It's, it's something that seemed exciting. 
And it was a couple of months. I've been away from home that long, being in college and having a few years under my belt of being away from home. I was like, I can handle three months because it was just a summer. And I loved it. So like Rolla, when I left, was like 16,000 people. And then Lawrence, Kansas, that's actually like a bigger city. We're in proximity to Kansas City. So the scale keeps increasing of city and community that I'm living in. And then living in Paris, that was it because we lucked out. So it was a group of us. And there were five girls in the program. And they put us in this sweet little renovated apartment. It was in like a fifth floor walk up in this old vintage building, an arch outside our window. It was so picturesque. So it was a very idyllic and exciting way to experience being abroad for the first time. You're like living with your four friends, you're going out and really soaking in the city, not a care in the world, like study abroad. This is paid for, I'm here. I don't have many worries. I just get to really experience my first time being in a city that you navigate with public transit. You have your neighborhood bakery, you have your neighborhood gold market. There's like the wine shop you always go to. There's a bar down the street where you go to and hang out and do like trivia. And that's all right within walking distance. And being exposed to that, I was like, this is it. This is the way to live. I loved it so much. I had so much fun. And Rolla, you're not walking to the grocery store. In the way I experienced it, I'm sure some people do live close enough to. You drive to everything. Everything's five minutes away because everything's a car drive away. And it was so different and such a shift. So I get that way of living, but I so much prefer being in the city and being able to just jump on the train whenever you need or like there's a bus coming and where I live now, I walk five minutes on the street to the grocery store to pick up what I need. And understanding that that way of living and how it affects what I see as like good design and how you want to design communities, you want to facilitate that level of community and that level of ease of living. Someone can just enjoy their life and their day easily. They can pop down the street and get their groceries, no trouble. They want to go for a drink with friends. It's right down the other way and it's safe, it enriches you. That's the kind of spaces that you wanna create for people. I do understand that. I feel like I've never traveled outside the country, so I don't know what it is to like go to Paris, but I do understand cities that revolve just around cars because that's, I'm from Vegas and that's how it is. You use a car to get everywhere. You don't really use the public transportation or it's just so hard to use it. But I've also lived in Seattle where it's, it's better to just not even have a car. And so I understand walking to places, it's so much nicer, it's so much more comfortable. You get to get some fresh air. I feel like it also builds a sense of community because now you see people on the way. Mm-hmm. You talk to people even if it's for like two minutes, people you didn't even know. Yeah. So it's very nice. So I totally understand that. What made you so interested in Chicago and how did you end up at Ku? It was, like I said, there was a gap between when I finished school and when I came to Chicago. So when I finished school, like I said, it's a recession, there aren't jobs. But my goal after sort of like being in, in my, the internship abroad, my goal was like, oh, I would love to work abroad right after school. But like the job market was not having it. So my friend and I, we just Understood. still went abroad. <laughs> we just went to Spain because we had a friend there already and he was doing English as second language teaching. He was like, yeah, he was like, you can come do this and it's possible you can come live here. So I went to Spain for a year after school and we lived in Madrid. I love that. I actually came back coming up on a year of it. Some people that I met there and some of my friends there, they've been doing it for years. But I was like, this is not like, I'm definitely not passionate about this. I love to live in Spain, but like 
my brother was getting ready to have his first kid. I was like, I'm not feeling passionate about this. As much as I love being in Spain, like yeah. I don't love this as, I don't want this as a profession or a career. So I came back and then I was in St. Louis for a minute and I had one of my best friends from college lived here. So back then, St. Louis to Chicago on the Amtrak, $19. So Very I would come easy. here, yeah, I would come here all the time to like hang out or for long weekends. And every time I came here, I loved it. And yeah, I'm coming here to visit friends and hang out. But you go out, you're always meeting great people. You're always having new experiences. And I had already decided that I wanted to live in a city. And for me, St. Louis just wasn't like meeting those requirements. St. Louis, you're still living there. It's still very car dependent. The transit didn't really take you where you need or want to be. So I'm living in St. Louis. I'm not having like career success that I want to. It's still very car dependent. And then I'm coming to Chicago and visiting my friends and having a blast. It's so diverse and it's so interesting. And you're like on the train. Finally, I decided, why am I staying in St. Louis when every time I come to Chicago, I love it so much more. Yeah. So I just moved. <laughs> it's a beautiful city. I yeah. don't blame you. Yeah. So I moved. And when I came here, I didn't have a job lined up or anything. So I, when I first got here, I had previously been working at, was I working at? I was working at Gap Kids. And then I moved here and my friend worked at a mortgage company. So I worked at a mortgage company and The Gap. I think I did that for like another year before I started applying for architecture jobs. Because I was like really settled in. It hadn't panned out to like be in architecture. Just the way the market worked after I graduated and then I wasn't looking. And then I was doing things to just have a job. But once I started looking, I looked out, I interviewed at a couple of places. I actually interviewed at Coup and I interviewed at a place in the suburbs as well. And that way it was down to those options. And I really, I really hate commuting and traffic. And it was going to like me driving out there. And <laughs> just, I can't even believe now that I considered it because I would have hated it so much. I feel like you hate cars. I don't hate cars. <laughs> like I love, like they're so useful. When you need to run an errand quick, love having a car. I don't have one now. Actually, I got rid of mine a few years ago. But sometimes I miss being able to just like jump in the car and run an errand. But at the same time, being dependent on an hour plus commute in a car every morning and every day. That makes sense. Yeah. No way. So luckily I got the offer from Koo because I've been there now for like nine years and I've grown tremendously and been able to work on like really cool projects mm -hmm. and working in the city. I love that. So it, it all worked out in the end. That's so cool. You like moved here and then after that you got the job. It was more, you moved here because you like being here. Yeah. In that case, when did you start getting involved with NOMA and AAA? So a little bit into working at Koo. So I've always enjoyed working with kids and that sort of outreach. And then someone told me about Project Pipeline as an opportunity to volunteer. It was actually an engineer from another firm told me about it oh, hey, this camp is coming up. And they were like, I volunteer with it. It might be something that is of interest to you because we were actually working on a school at the time. And I signed up to volunteer. I think I volunteered for like one or two days. And that was my first exposure and introduction to INOMA. And people really make circumstances and places and organizations because every person I met as I got more and more involved because I had a great time with camp, so I would start coming to more things. And every person I met was so engaged and so passionate about either their job or what they were doing with INOMA. 
And that really resonated with me because it may be like not the coolest thing, but I like the profession. I like the work and I like the professional slash social aspect of it too. The where community. Yeah, the community where you're really talking about like how as a profession are we righting the wrongs that architecture has done and how are we increasing outreach? How are we lifting other people up? Definitely. And meeting people that were consistently interested in those same things. It was so natural for me to just get more and more involved with the organization. With every person I met, you just get a little bit more into what you're doing. And then you're like, oh, I'm on a committee. And then you're like, oh, I'm on the board. And then, okay, cool. Like I would be, yeah, I'd be interested in sort of helping lead the organization and keep pushing this forward more. That's cool. And then AIA, that was a little bit parallel and later someone reached out to me and they were like, this is another way for you to be engaged in the community and the profession. And it is a different, obviously it's a different organization, but it's still been exciting and interesting to learn and grow in that organization as well. Because INOMA is focused on minority architects and then AI is the profession at large. And so it's interesting to see and be a part of those discussions and help with that mission where it's, it is sort of like building, getting to be more. This is obviously like coming from me as just an individual, not like me as a, representing what AIA says, but being present in those rooms and for those conversations and seeing how that organization, um, the way it advocates for the community, the way it advocates for like architects at the, because I'm in AIA Chicago. So the way it really advocates for architects at this professional local level. Yeah. And because it's a huge architecture community. Chicago, just at large, like it's one of the hotbeds of architecture. City of architecture. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So that's been a really cool learning experience to be a part of, again, an even wider audience of people that are passionate about the work that they're doing and what the profession can be and wanting to build it and take it higher and further and make it even better. So I really enjoy learning about it. That's really nice. I like how it all started with you just trying to help kids with Project Pipeline and ended up with, oh, let me join this. Yeah, it just like really everything leads to the next thing. Yeah. And, if, and that's part of being like, like saying open opportunities. And if you just volunteer, yeah, you could just do camp and like take off and see again next year. Mm-hmm. But like if you keep coming back to other things like other meetings or other events, It builds your professional community, which I think for me helps me enjoy the job more. Like having the community of people beyond sort of just the work of the project you're working on right then, having the larger network, having the larger conversations, it makes everything like a lot more fulfilling to me. I feel like also just having people who are passionate about everything that they're doing also influences you to like want to also be passionate about it. Yeah. Really nice. A hundred percent. Yeah. So when thinking about the representation in architecture, how do you try to elevate minority voices, especially to promote the profession to the youth? So obviously, like, it's a problem that anyone in the profession knows that there is a representation problem. Yes. It's something that people, as an industry, I think that everyone's sort of, like, wrestling with the best approach to increase representation, to make sure you're supporting architects of color who are coming up to make sure that you're supporting them through just architects of color, but even just like minority represented architects. So whether that be like color or gender identity, you really, it's still like always a struggle to identify 
the hurdles and removing them because it's such a complex conversation anytime it comes up because is it sort of like institutional stuff? Is it money? Like it's a whole host of things. And so for me, I feel like being in the rooms where the conversations about these things are happening is so critical. So if you have an opportunity, it is a complex thing because if you have an opportunity to be in these rooms and be a representative and advocate for underrepresented people in these discussions, yes, absolutely, you should do it. But then on the flip side is, you know, we are people who are faced with these hurdles already. And so is another hurdle you having to take on having these conversations and you having to take on these leadership roles in order to make sure that these conversations are happening and moving forward, that becomes almost a second weight that you have to carry in addition to the weight of overcoming these obstacles that we know exist. Yeah. So all that said, I do feel like it's important to be in the room where these conversations are happening to make sure you're connecting with people who are coming up in the profession whenever you can, just like sharing knowledge, sharing experiences, sharing opportunities to make sure that if you, let's say you, you find out about an opportunity to use like it, it probably overused words, we're not going to like gatekeep these, these resources. Do you make sure that as soon as you know about them, you're, you're taking them to the table and saying, hey, everyone, this is something that is helping. This is something that is going to move you forward faster. Sharing and having candid conversations about professional development and making sure that people aren't coming in, like things you learn late, things you learn five, 10 years in, you can tell that to someone one year in and then they are that much further ahead when it comes time to make decisions, when it comes to like choosing a job, choosing an employer or negotiating for a raise, choosing whether or not when to take their licensing exams. So having all of those discussions and being a resource in that way to colleagues, to younger colleagues, I think is also important because those are some of the hurdles. Sometimes overcoming all those things is what keeps someone back and stops someone from getting licensed in a timely fashion. And then, then they're that much further behind, not behind to say, because you're certainly developing professionally. But, you know, it's, I think that those kind of things are ways that without sort of like, you can't create new minority architects out of thin air. Yeah. So it really is about sort of like making sure that you are doing your best to remove obstacles that are the reasons that the full class that's graduating isn't translating into licensed architects. Because there's obviously a gap between the numbers that are enrolled in school and the numbers that end up licensed. And like I said, it's a very long discussion about what is creating that gap and how we overcome it. And it's complex to decide what we as a community are willing to do to address it. But individually, I feel like those are the things that we can do to start to handle and work through the problem on an individual to individual level. But systemically, it's a very difficult conversation. Yeah, sometimes it can be a little bit like sad just because as a student of color, just coming to school and everything, I felt like in the beginning, I didn't have many people to look up to. Or at least there wasn't women of color that I knew of at the time that I could be like, I want to be like her because there isn't as much representation or sometimes it's hard to find the representation. You don't know, you don't get to see it because they're not the most famous architect or we barely even have women in architecture. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's very important to have that face, have that recognition too. And just to have someone to look up to is beautiful. 
and especially seeing people who are super passionate about what they do and having all the resources that helps a lot because architecture is hard yeah <laughs> people give up all the time it's hard so that extra support yeah yeah because it's it's not hard to see how like the hours in studio the money just to meet the threshold of passing not even to meet the threshold of like great or excelling it's yeah. it's a high bar and it's a strenuous education process and then it translates into a, a strenuous career path so i think just sort of trying to do what i can to create sort of a not like not to say like nurturing but a positive and encouraging community and conversations about coming in profession that they're open and they're honest and sharing knowledge back and forth so people feel like they have resources and they have people they can come to and there's a network of people that they can lean on and feel confident that they can get licensed and have the career that they were picturing in their minds when they were at school and not to come out and feel like they're unsupported and this isn't what they thought at all and actually never mind. That's like the saddest part, yeah. So that's what we want to avoid. So in that case, how do you feel like your work fits into your vision of diversity? So there's the part of the job where on some levels you are, okay, so you don't always get to choose your projects. So at our job, we do a good mix of institutional and private and hospitality work. And we're getting into sort of like, I'm working on a multifamily project right now that's affordable housing. And then also I've worked on a whole host of Chicago Public Schools capital improvement projects where you're doing renovation work. So that is to say that like it takes all jobs to make a successful practice. And on some levels, it's like really part of what you're doing in every job is sort of making sure that no matter the scale or type or size of the job, that you are thinking critically about, even if it's just sort of like what you might consider a not exciting renovation project. But you have to look at every opportunity as an opportunity to provide really good quality design. Because even if it's just a renovation project and it's mostly like upgrading systems, there's an opportunity to also, you're like, okay, we're doing that, but we're also upgrading finishes and you can provide an elevated, albeit affordable and completely within their budget, but you're making a point to reach beyond the base level and really provide an elevated design or a thoughtful approach to the design because, yeah, it's a small thing, but these kids come to school here every day. And you adding that extra level of care to design in their spaces means that space is that much more hospitable and welcoming to them. And then that is a more encouraging learning environment. I'm sure the faculty feels like this is a workplace that people feel like they're taken care of. And so that's a workplace that's supporting them. And so whether it's that in like a really small, it's not small school, but like just a CPS renovation, those are opportunities to, yeah, you're not building a whole new school in an underfunded neighborhood, but you are helping to improve the conditions of a school in a sort of maybe underfunded or in a lower income neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Those are opportunities, albeit small, to really put your best into that design, even though it's not a big flashy new building. Yeah. On the flip side, we're doing a big affordable housing complex. And whereas someone might hear affordable housing and think 
they're picturing the same thing. They're picturing something that's like really quick and dirty. That's not necessarily true. Like you can do, you can provide a, like I would love to live in this place. You can provide really elevated and thoughtful design where someone, yes, it's an affordable apartment, but it looks like a well thought, like well designed and interesting. And it's beyond sort of like, here's the base level. Just because it's an affordable place doesn't mean you can't do everything and go above and beyond with more critical thought. And so we're the architects, we're not the developers, <laughs> and you're not city government. And you can't say this neighborhood needs it and we're going to go and put it here and it's going to work because all of the community resources and the city resources that need to exist there, we're going to make those exist there. So you're working within the bounds and limits of the projects that exist. You can still do a lot to make positive change and take steps to get the communities to where they are supporting a good quality of life or an improved standard of living where it may not have existed previously. Having the designs create experiences for people so that they can just enjoy the space and live there comfortably no matter what condition they are in. And honestly, it doesn't really matter the scale of the project. Every architecture influences somebody's way of life in one way or another. Yeah, that's the best way to think about it because everything we do is creating spaces that shape how people live their day to day. Yeah. And so everything is an opportunity to make that experience better. Yeah. So how do you feel architecture and its profession will change in the future? I think that you can see the trends, which I think are really positive, and the approach and ethos of the professional organizations being an openness to addressing the harms that architecture has done through sort of like codified discrimination and the harms of the profession being largely like white male dominated and how that affects how we are designing for certain communities. You can see that professions, the conversation is really less about just acknowledging that and more about acknowledging how to address and rectify those issues. And so I think that now, so it used to be sort of like the struggle was how do we identify what's been going on? And now it's like, no, we know what the problems are. We know what we want to end at, which is an architecture community that is representative of the people we design for. So if half of the people in the country are people of color, then why aren't half of our architects people of color? Why aren't we reaching that level of representation? So we understand that that's the goal. How are we going to get there? And so people are asking these questions and really making concerted efforts to finding solutions. So I feel like things are going in a really positive direction. And when you see the numbers, it's slow. And so there's definitely some work to be made and progress to be made because you want, as much as we're increasing the number of licensed architects, the numbers of minority women, like Black and Latina women, those numbers aren't climbing nearly as fast as the numbers of licensed architects. So yes, we're reaching more people, and yes, we're getting more people over the hurdle of licensure, but we're still not really reaching those underrepresented groups as much as we need to in order to get where we want to be, which is a profession that's as diverse as people we're serving. I do think it's going in the right direction, but like I said, it's a complex conversation to understand all of the different moving pieces that have to come together to really take down some of these systemic hurdles that exist 
for especially people of color. Because if the first time you find out that architecture is an option, that yeah. that's a job you can have, is like you're in a low-income neighborhood in an underserved part of a city, and you find out in high school that that's a, a job you could have. Even like you mentioned, the rigors of an architectural education, the price of an architectural education, already that's like the biggest hurdle sometimes. So I feel like we're moving in a positive direction because we know that these things exist and we are successfully identifying a lot of the issues, but there's still a very big gap between that identifying and then finding solutions. But as long as people are really having these open dialogues about what the problems are and trying to find solutions, it feels like things are going in a positive direction. I agree. I'm very confident in what the future holds for architecture, and I'm so excited to see what comes out of it, especially with, for example, Project Pipeline, and there's a lot more architecture, especially in Chicago with Invest Southwest, there's a lot more architecture going into underdeveloped communities, so mm -hmm. I'm excited for the future. Yes, 100%. Seeing that kind of initiative where they're saying on paper, we are focusing on communities that were previously disinvested. Yes. So we're saying, yes, there was a systemic problem and that is why we are addressing this. And that cuts the debate of, oh, like, where should it go? I'm like, no, the places that were disinvested are the places that need the resources. Mm -hmm. And so that's, like you said, a really positive direction and seems to be a positive trend that's happening. And we just have to keep doing work like what you guys are doing and Project Pipeline. Keep doing the work to really get that to snowball into an impactful change. I agree. So... Before we end, I would like to ask, what are your goals for the future? Because I know we all are dying to know. <laughs> it's hard to, like, I think about that a lot. Because it's like, how do you pinpoint goals? And this is something I talk about, or this is something I think about when we're planning, like, I know more programming for mid-career professionals especially. How do you really take your license? You got it. Like, congratulations, big things. But then like, what are the next steps? What do you want to do? I, that's tough. What are my goals? <laughs> I do want to keep working in the professional, what do you call it, like organization side. I enjoy that work in representing and being a representative for the profession and speaking and advocating for growth and the changes I think we should see in the job. So I definitely will stay involved. My, my tenure as I know my president will be over, but I will... Definitely stay involved in AIA and in NOMA and try to, to take what I've learned so far and build on that, be it maybe getting involved at the national level with NOMA or maybe more representation in AI Chicago. I do think that the work that these organizations have to do is important and I like being a part of that effort. So 100%, like my career as an architect, like at KU, I am growing constantly learning new things. I, I enjoy the work that we do. And so I'll continue growing there. And then, like I said, just taking the things I've learned so far and, and really building in what I've got going on right now and be it like maybe taking the next step in representation in either of those organizations, how exactly that looks and what exactly that timeline is, is not 100% clear because I've been in, in the INOMA for, on the board for a minute. So like, I'm excited to stay involved, but I'm excited for a little reprieve as well at the end of this year. Yeah. Yeah. So that wasn't as clear as it could have been because like I didn't have like a hard goal on paper. But yeah, definitely to keep growing. I enjoy that part of the job. So 
I mean, whatever you end up doing, I support it. Thank you. <laughs> so, Same to you. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, I look forward to seeing what ends up happening in the future. And I also appreciate you taking the time to be here today. It was a nice conversation. I appreciate you guys inviting me out. This was fun. I was talking to someone. I was like, I was excited. <laughs> Come have a discussion with you guys. I'm excited that you're doing this. Thank you. I want to thank everyone who's listening. We release our episodes monthly. You can find this on Spotify, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. I want to thank our producer, Kayla Kwok, and the WIT team for making this podcast possible. Thank you for listening to the episode of Beyond the Surface featuring Ashton Williams. Until next time, goodbye.